Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 17, Not Even Jail. Today's proverb comes from Goethe. I'll read it twice. A man does not mind being blamed for his faults and being punished for them, and he patiently suffers for them, but he becomes impatient if he is required to give them up. Once more. A man does not mind being blamed for his faults and being punished for them, and he patiently suffers for them but he becomes impatient if he's required to give them up. The first thing I would point out here is the odd choice of the word impatient. We patiently suffer for our faults, but we are impatient if we are required to give them up. The word we might expect on a second read is angry. We become angry if we are required to give them up. And maybe anger is a result of impatience. Maybe impatience naturally tends towards anger. But I find the word impatient intriguing. Why do we become impatient? When I think about the things that make me impatient as opposed to angry. I become impatient when I'm not allowed to talk and I want to. That's the first thing that comes to mind is something that induces impatience. When someone else is talking and they won't stop talking and what I have to say is 
more important. Or I think it's more important. I become impatient waiting my turn to talk. I also become impatient when there are not immediate results, and I was expecting immediate results. Or when I have looked forward to something, and when the moment of the anticipated thing finally arrives and it's not there, I become impatient waiting for it to get there. I would almost rather find out that the anticipated thing doesn't exist or that I'm never going to get it and I simply have to live without forever than to be told the thing you were looking forward to will come at some point, just not now. That vexes me. That makes me impatient. So we go back to this quote, a man doesn't mind being blamed for his faults and being punished for them, and he patiently suffers for them. But he becomes impatient if he's required to give them up. Now, Goethe says faults. I think the word faults, I don't know what the original translation was. Obviously, this is um, translated from the German. But the word faults... I suspect doesn't quite get at the gist of the quote. When we think of faults, we think of maybe rudeness, personality faults, rudeness, or um, lack of punctuality, or um, a tendency to sleep too late. They seem like faults. And I know the quote says faults, but I think the gist of the quote is private sins, not slight quirks of a personality, but the sort of sins that we might someday be caught in and be told we cannot do anymore. So let me... Let me try the quote one more time this way. A man doesn't mind being blamed for his sins and being punished for his sins. And he patiently suffers for his sins. But he becomes impatient if he's required to give his sins up. Other people don't understand. That's the impatience. We become impatient with those who are requiring us give them up. They don't understand. And what they don't understand is that we have ways of making up for our sin that mitigates the badness of the sin. We have taken care of our sins. Our sins are made up for, they're accounted for, they're balanced out by other virtues we have, other qualities we have, other labor we perform. And other people don't perceive this delicate balance in our heads whereby we have justified our sins as a sort of consolation for all these other good things or demanding things or difficult things that we do. Um, Our sins are not difficult in and of themselves. Sin always offers momentary pleasure. And the momentary pleasure of sin is always 
destructive of something, maybe your health, maybe your sanity. And other people want us to give up our sins because they love us and they see that we're destroying ourselves. But what they don't understand, what they're ignorant of, is that our sins are not actually that bad when compared with other people who don't know how to handle their sin. Our sins are not that bad given that we have made up for them. We have bought the right to our sins by the difficulty and struggle of our lives. Our faults are the consolation for all that we suffer during the day. And because the day does not provide us with enough pleasure, with enough legal pleasure, with enough pleasure that can be enjoyed openly, we have to enjoy some pleasures privately. And that is the fault that justifies our suffering and which unreasonable people want to take away from us. We can endure the blaming and punishing and suffering because we have an expectation of enjoying our faults again. To put it simply, our faults are worth it. Who's doing the blaming and punishing and suffering, though? Again, a man does not mind being blamed for his faults and being punished for them. And he patiently suffers for them. But he becomes impatient if he is required to give them up. Who's doing the blaming and punishing and suffering? There are, I think, three answers to this question. The first answer is... You. You are doing the blaming and punishing and suffering. And the blaming and the punishing and the suffering are often taking place a day later, after the sin has been enjoyed. And you blame yourself and you punish yourself and chastise yourself and you feel contrition and you promise yourself that you are done with it. That's one aspect of the blaming and punishing and suffering. Buyer's remorse, sinner's remorse. The remorse that always shoots back into the heart after sanity has been regained. You might almost fall into a kind of trance in temptation. But that trance always ends the moment that sin is caved to. Sanity is restored. You feel awful. You blame yourself. You punish yourself. You suffer. So you do the blaming, punishing, and suffering. That's one way of putting it. Ah, but there's another way of thinking that nature, it's nature itself, it's human nature that does the blaming and punishing and suffering. As I've argued before, not originally, uh, but borrowed this argument from Edmund Burke, Roger Scruton, most conservative theorists, um, with a philosophical bent over the last hundred years, that nature itself is a kind of teacher. Nature teaches us how to do well. Nature imposes limits on us, tells us how far we may go safely. And because sin is a corrupting and destructive pleasure, it's our own nature that blames and punishes and leads us to suffer. 
I prefer to say that it's nature because I think of nature almost as the witness of God. Nature bears witness to God. Nature is divine in the sense that it is good and drafts on God's goodness. I'm also content to say that it's God who does the blaming and punishing and suffering, but I think he does it through the limitations of our nature that we fight. But it's the third party that does the blaming and punishing and suffering that we're most vexed by. And that's people in authority over us. Maybe even society as a whole. Maybe society does the blaming, punishing, and suffering, and we are all subject to the authority of society. But it also might mean spouses, parents, bosses, cops. They do the blaming and the punishing and the suffering. And they're really the ones that don't understand. They're the ones who don't understand that it's worth it. You never get into an argument with nature on how it's worth it. You can only argue with yourself and with society. You have persuaded yourself over and again that it's worth it, but it's other people who don't understand. Now, in your sane moments, you recognize that temptation and sin are a kind of madness, and that when a man gives into madness, it's actually true that he doesn't understand. But when you want to return to your sin, you've got to say that other people don't understand it. Now, I believe that what this quote slowly shapes up is that our faults, which I'm arguing means our sins, the sins that we suffer for time and again, the sins that we don't mind spending lavishly on, These sins constitute a sort of private life, a second life, maybe even a life that has been slowly and patiently assembled over many years. The sins that we are blamed for and punished for and suffer for and become impatient if we're asked to give up are not sins, are not bad habits we started last year. If we're thinking of faults, if we want to use like smoking as an example, a bad habit, bad for your health. The blaming and punishing and suffering that a man endures to be a smoker have been your burden for years. If people are blaming you and punishing you and you are suffering for your sin of smoking, for your fault of smoking, you probably didn't start two weeks ago. Which might mean that you started smoking on the sly, not doing it openly. Because if you did it openly and you were immediately blamed and punished and suffered for it, you would probably give it up. We have these private lives. We develop these private lives. Not second identities as librarians. Not moonlighting as Uber drivers or something like that. 
But these private lives that are built around our favorite sins. This is all far more easier in the digital age. But it became possible once the city was the new organizing principle of Western life. There may have been private lives of medieval farmers, but I suspect that the private life of a medieval farmer was just his thought life, the things that he thought about when he was out in the field, planting, harvesting. There was no place in which to have a private life. There was no anonymity. But the city provides the anonymity we need to have a private life. I'm reminded of a certain passage from Anton Chekhov's short story, The Lady with the Little Dog, which if you've never read it, you could knock it out in 30 minutes. And it would make you feel terrible in a really wonderful sort of way. It would make you feel the burden of your sins in a spectacular fashion. I highly recommend it. Like so much great Russian literature... The lady with the little dog deals with infidelity. And when I think of Russian literature, which I have not read a lot of, but I've read a good sampling of it. For Russians, the iconic sin is adultery. Infidelity to one's spouse is the means by which a lot of great Russian literature investigates the concept of sin in total. So perhaps different societies have different sins which they regard as iconic, the sin by which all other sins are known. But for the Russians, it seems to me that being unfaithful to one's spouse is the ultimate icon of being unfaithful to God, or at least the most common way of understanding it. Chekhov Not a pious Christian, but Chekhov dealt with infidelity in a remarkable fashion. The Lady with the Little Dog is a story about a playboy who finds a young, attractive woman at a seaside resort, strikes up an affair, she feels guilty, they break up. And then one day he goes looking for her, and he finds her, and he wants to continue the affair. And he kind of does, a little There's a moment in the story where this man is coming to his senses, where he's stepped back far enough from his affair that he can see it objectively. And Chekhov puts us into this man's head, and this is his realization. This is a long quotation from the story. He had two lives, one open, seen and known by all who cared to know, full of relative truth and of relative falsehood, exactly like the lives of his friends and acquaintances, and another life running its course in secret. And through some strange, perhaps accidental conjunction of circumstances, 
everything that was essential of interest and of value to him. Everything in which he was sincere and did not deceive himself, everything that made the kernel of his life was hidden from other people. And all that was false in him, the sheath in which he hid himself to conceal the truth, such, for instance, as his work in the bank, his discussions at the club, his presence with his wife at anniversary festivities, that was all open. And he judged of others by himself, not believing in what he saw, and always believing that every man had his real, most interesting life under the cover of secrecy and under the cover of night. All personal life rested on secrecy. And possibly, it was partly on that account that civilized man was so nervously anxious that personal privacy should be respected. Life in the city allows for anonymity. And the creation of this second life, this other life, a secret life, cannot but become a man's real life, at least the way that he perceives it. This Chekhov rightly understands. Because all of the difficulties of the day pour into the second life, the secret life. Every awful thing that a man has to endure during the day, every little vicissitude of work, can all ultimately be justified as being the purchase of this second life that nobody knows about. As soon as a man has two lives, the smaller of the two will become more meaningful. The smaller of the two will give the bigger meaning. In the same way that a whole ship is guided by a rudder, a man's whole life is guarded by what is small. It's guided by what is small. It's course is determined by the smallest portion. Plato argues the same thing in the Republic, that man has a desire for pleasure and a desire for safety and a desire for wisdom. And the desire for wisdom is smallest, but in the best governed men, it's the smallest thing that guides them. It cannot be but that this second life should ultimately take over the larger life. And we might say that these two lives are separated and that they will never cross over. But as we become more habituated to the private life, and as we come to view the private life as our real self, and everything that happens during the day is a kind of husk of our real life, the private life cannot remain private forever. And it begins seeping upward. And there are hints of it in the way that we speak during the day. You've probably noticed this in other people. People that you know only 
partially. That every now and again they say something. They use the vocabulary of some kind of hidden second life that seems to have accidentally come out. And people occasionally make reference to these private lives that they have. And you begin to wonder if they have, to some extent, given themselves away. I have students who do this all the time. Choices in the way that they represent themselves, which accidentally, maybe intentionally, suggest profound knowledge of seedy things. In Chekhov's The Lady with the Little Dog, the man becomes impatient with the husk life. He becomes aggravated that everything that makes life worth living has to be hidden. Because hiding things is anxiety-inducing. It's difficult. And we get the feeling that we cannot do anything to its fullest that must be hidden. And we think if we could just live openly, we could conduct our private faults to the fullest. Maybe even we could be done with them if we could just live them in public. Again, a man does not mind being blamed for his faults and being punished for them, and he patiently suffers for them. Suggests a man whose private life is becoming known, but he becomes impatient if he's required to give them up. There are occasions where those second lives lead to disaster. Maybe it's a paradoxical relationship we have with these private lives. Where on the one hand, we wish we could live them openly, and another part of us wishes that we could just be done with them forever. And we wonder what it would take to be done with them forever. Another quote, another proverb I read this week from the same passage of an anthology of quotes from which I got this Goethe quote. This is from a French essayist uh, named Val Vinargue, who says, we're dismayed when we find that even disaster cannot cure us of our faults. Even disaster cannot put to bed forever our private lives. Our private lives are really of the soul. Of course, the digital age has allowed us all to have private lives. Private lives that are meticulously assembled that only we know about. Spotify has the private session option. When you want to listen to music, but you don't want others to know that you listen to it. What does a man say when he hits private session on Spotify? <laughs> How does he justify doing this? I think he says other people wouldn't understand. They wouldn't understand my interest in this. 
I only listen to this music ironically. Or I balance this preference out with better preferences. The only way of escaping the private life, I speak not as one who has attained to this, but the only way of escaping this horrifying dichotomy between a public life and a private life, a private life that not even jail can take away from you, is for your identity to be bound up in the church. That's it. That's the only escape from this. Because church life is public life. Church life is public life par excellence. Church life provides life with meaning, and it is a quieter and more reserved life than the hustle and bustle of the city. The church is itself a kind of escape from the turmoil of the world. The church itself is that greater Noah's Ark that saves us from the deluge of worldliness. Through the church, a man could safely enjoy this smaller private life that would give everything that he did throughout the day, throughout the week, meaning. And it could be a private life that was cultivated richly through continual prayer, continual conversation with God. At the end of the day, the church is the only escape from the horrors of anonymity. It's the only way of sublimating your person to something higher and grander that will not ultimately destroy you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 